0: You're listening to an event from the US Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, President Grundy, for the invitation to come here to the US Institute of of Peace and to address issues of uh, the relationship between the United States and Vietnam, a bit about the relationship between the United States, Laos, and Cambodia. And certainly a special welcome to all of you who have journeyed from Southeast Asia to come and join this two-day conference. Uh, Thank you for being invested in a a future with a a positive, strong partnership uh, between the United States and the countries of Southeast Asia. I do want to follow up on the President's uh, recognition of the the passing of Senior Lieutenant General Win Chi Vinh, a former Vice Minister of Defense. He was an absolutely key architect in building the relationship between the United States and Vietnam, particularly over the remediation of dioxin. And uh, I have with me a copy of a speech that Senator Leahy gave in March of 2021, in which he paid tribute. And I just thought I would read a couple of paragraphs uh, to remind us of this uh, key relationship and the contributions that he made. So these are the words of, of Senator Leahy. Mr. President, he's addressing the President of the Senate. Mr. President, I want to pay tribute to one of Vietnam's highest ranking military officers, Senior Lieutenant General Nguyen Chi Vinh. General Vinh, who has served as Vietnam's Deputy Minister of National Defense since 2009, has played an indispensable role in the reconciliation between Vietnam and the United States. After more than four decades of military service, he is finally nearing retirement from the Ministry of National Defense. The speech goes on for several uh, pages, but I just thought I'd cite one other paragraph. General Vinh has been my principal Vietnamese counterpart in working to address the legacy of dioxin contamination at the former U.S. military bases and the needs of Vietnamese with severe physical and cognitive disabilities resulting from exposure to dioxin. I consider him a friend, and I'm grateful for the hospitality he has shown me, my wife, Marcel, and other senators who have visited Vietnam. Each significant um, positive effort takes champions on both sides of the relationship. And certainly, Lieutenant General Vinh was a champion, and he will be missed. In April, I had the privilege of leading a congressional delegation to Vietnam with the express purpose of sustaining the war legacy programs that former Senator Patrick Leahy had worked for years to establish. His key staff member in this effort, Tim Reeser, is here. And if Tim could stand for a minute, I'd just like to recognize him for all Decades now, He did this this work in the context of being the clerk for the Appropriations Subcommittee on State and Foreign Operations. But I don't. I think he would have managed to accomplish this work no matter what official position uh, he held. And. Uh, since um, uh, Senator Leahy's retirement, he's continued to really facilitate uh, the connections between our our nations. These programs uh, mean a lot to me personally. And I've thought about why they resonate so much. And the story really begins when I'm just a little tyke And my father, a mechanic, would come home and after dinner we would watch the evening news. And on the news in the early mid-60s and then forward would be clips from the war in Vietnam. And I have this memory of, of asking my mother about war. How long could a war last, this conflict? and asking her if it could last more than a week, more than a month, more than a year, and each time her affirming that yes, it could last longer than that. And it was hard for me as a, just a little guy to get my hands around a conflict that could endure with so much carnage for such a, a length of time. And then I started to realize uh, that this was a war that in which young men were conscripted drafted by the United States and sent to serve. I lived in a blue-collar community. In that community, when people's draft number was called, there wasn't a lot of discussion about being a conscientious objector or a lot of discussion about college deferment. I'm the first in my family to go to college. Very few people I knew had gone to college. And so the, the context was, this might be something that I might be sent to that, to that war. Well, that focuses the mind, but as it turned out, in June of 1973, the official authority for conscripting Americans ended. That was almost exactly a year before I graduated high school. So I wasn't drafted, and I didn't face the choices that I might have uh, faced about deferment or conscientious objection. But off I went to college with a strong interest in international affairs, and immediately launched in some courses on international affairs. And I, I've learned a whole lot about the war. And um, I just uh, came to believe that the entire enterprise was a terrible, tragic mistake. So many deaths in Vietnam, where every family was touched. So many deaths in American families, so many injuries American soldiers were bringing home, all for a severely flawed theory of international security. So when I learned about Senator Leahy's programs to heal the wounds of war, it just, like, this is the right thing to do. I want to help sustain these programs as Senator Leahy retires. That's how I ended up leading a congressional delegation uh, to Vietnam this last April. One of the Leahy War Legacy programs is to clean up the remaining hot spots of dioxin contamination from Agent Orange, called such because the barrels had an orange stripe that went around them. The Agent Orange is a defoliant. It's cancer-causing. It caused genetic defects. It's highly toxic. And we sprayed incredible amounts across the landscape of Vietnam to make it easier to see the deployment of Vietnamese soldiers. The U.S. stacked thousands of these barrels at the Air Force bases and many of those barrels leaked, resulting in deep contamination at Da Nang and Bien Hoa. And the U.S. decontamination program that uh, Lieutenant General Vinh helped to partner in, tackled Da Nang Air Force Base first. And that had already been fully cleaned up by the time our delegation went in in April. We built a a giant oven, uh, then excavated and baked incredible amounts of of, of dirt to basically neutralize that dioxin. Bien Hoa Air Force Base was next. And while most of that work is still ahead of us, some 10-year agenda ahead of us, a piece has been completely decontaminated and re-landscaped as the Peace Park. And at one end of the park is a bench, the Leahy Bench. Inscribed into that bench is a quote from Senator Leahy saying, we cannot change history, but together, we can build a better future. I think that's just a powerful, beautiful sentiment. That's what the war legacy programs are all about. We cannot change what came before, but we can shape what lies ahead of us. Former enemies working together to build a better future. Those war legacy programs operated really in two ways. One level is addressing the physical wounds of war. A second is building relationships through which we can partner on other projects. But let me address the components of that first level. The first is, as I mentioned, the cleaning up the dioxin hotspots. Dioxin again, generates birth defects, causes cancer the birth defects can be passed down through generations, and America must remain engaged and clean up Hoa Air Base. Completion of that project is estimated to take, well, about half a billion dollars and 10 years. So we have to stay the course. Now, when I went to college in my first year, and my first international relations course, we saw a film about the United States' involvement in Vietnam. And those of us in the course felt it so powerfully, so personally, that this was our generation's uh, tragedy. Then, four years later, I taught that course. I was a teaching assistant for that course. And I took my students to that same movie. And they saw it differently. They saw it as a previous generation's mistake in that kind of difference of four years span. Well, it's important that those of us who feel it personally, we're getting older, I'm 66 as General Vinn was, that we maintain this connection to our responsibilities on these war legacy programs. We make sure that others who are younger than us understand the connection and the responsibility as well. We have now invested about $140 million in programs to assist individuals who are suffering disabilities triggered by dioxin. Those funds support programs for medical and rehabilitation services, prosthetic and orthotic devices, physical, occupational, speech therapy, training and support for caregivers, access to public transportation, and promotion of disability rights and inclusion. These investments need to continue. Third, we're working to locate and clear unexploited ordnance. Since 1993, the U.S. government has assisted in the removal of hundreds of thousands of unexploded mines. I've seen different numbers ranging from 400,000 to 750,000, and what a huge number of, of mines cluster and often cluster munition bomblets. But that number of hundreds of thousands, it's a drop in the bucket when you consider that an estimated 800,000 tons of unexploded ordnance remains scattered across Vietnam. And those cluster munitions, they can lay hidden for decades until a plow hits them or a child picks one up. It explodes and kills those or maims those who are nearby. This is really why I fiercely opposed the use of cluster munitions in the Ukrainian war this year. Since the 1970s, over 100,000 people have been hurt or killed by the delayed explosion of these munitions. So we have to continue to work on the cleanup, to fund the work of the cleanup, however difficult, however tedious it might be. Fourth, we have to continue to provide care and assistive technologies to those who have been injured by the explosions. And there is a fifth component to these war legacy programs. Vietnam has, for a substantial amount of time, helped identify the remains of American soldiers and return their remains back to the United States. And for that, we are deeply, deeply grateful. The United States now has a program in which it is assisting Vietnam in using the best DNA technology in the world to help locate and return the remains of Vietnamese martyrs. This program helps recover these wandering souls, as they are referred to, who have been lost for half a century after dying in battle and return them to their families. And while the war in Vietnam was incredibly public, we cannot forget that the United States also fought a secret war in Cambodia and Laos. In Cambodia, it's estimated that the United States dropped 26 million cluster bomblets. Since 1979, about 65,000 Cambodians have been hurt or killed by these bombs. Today, there are 25,000 Cambodians living with limb loss as a result of unexploded ordnance that exploded. It's the highest ratio per capita in the world. And Laos, Laos is estimated to be the most heavily bombed country in the world, bombed by the United States. It's estimated the US dropped 270 million cluster bombs in Laos, or 10 times the amount dropped in Cambodia. And about a third of them failed to explode. And they're still hidden across the countryside. So the United States needs to do all it can to work with Laos and Cambodia in partnership to address the finding and removal of these munitions just as we have in Vietnam. Earlier this week, I met with the ambassador from Laos and we discussed ensuring that the United States and Laos continue to work together to find and remove these cluster munitions. So I mentioned that on the first level, these war legacy programs were about addressing the physical wounds of war. But on another level, they're about building a relationship, a relationship of cooperation, of planning, a partnership, of execution of those, those plans between our two nations. And that that partnership can be the foundation for working on many other issues from building a stronger economic partnership, a thriving Vietnamese manufacturing economy, working on issues of the environment or issues of security. Now, this cooperation was not inevitable. You know, the feelings in the course of war run deep and we could have chosen on one side or the other or both sides to remain bitter enemies. But that is not the choice that we have made. We have chosen together to build a better future and we have to keep investing in that choice, that choice of partnership for the future. The relationship between our two governments is growing. In addition to the war legacy programs, Vietnam has participated in a number of our exchange programs in which we sponsor individuals to come to the United States. In a previous capacity, I was head of the World Affairs Council of Oregon, and we hosted the International Visitors Leadership Program. And in that program, we hosted any number of delegations from Vietnam. There are now more than 7,000 Vietnamese alumni of U.S. government-sponsored exchange programs. We had, most recently, a delegation from Vietnam in my home state of Oregon in March. And I invite all of you to come visit the most beautiful and wonderful state in the United States of America. This past December, I worked to accelerate the confirmation of a new director of the Peace Corps, Carol Spahn, We got it done just in time for her to travel to Vietnam in December at Christmas time, to swear in the first ever group of Peace Corps volunteers. I think that makes it Vietnam the 143rd country to partner in the Peace Corps. And to allow Peace Corps members to be in Vietnam, that is a significant symbol of growing trust in the relationship between our nations. I was really pleased to be able to meet those Peace Corps members while I was there. And prominent diplomatic visits, accelerating. Secretary State Blinken visited Vietnam in April. I heard about his upcoming visit and mentioned it in some uh, conversation with the press. And I was informed that it had not been officially announced yet. <laughs> wasn't, word had pretty well spread, so it wasn't too bad of, of uh, faux pas. Uh, but um, you never know when you're going to make a mistake when you're wearing a microphone. But I was so pleased uh, that Secretary Blinken was, was going. And it helped pave the way for President Biden to visit this past Sunday where he and General Secretary Trong upgraded the U.S.-Vietnam partnership to a comprehensive strategic partnership and that is a tremendous uh, uh, goal point to accomplish. And so thank you to leadership of Vietnam and the United States for accomplishing that new relationship. And in the near future, Vietnamese Prime Minister Pham Minh Chin will be visiting the United States. So we will be welcoming him shortly. These, these visits, they underscore. Great strides that we have made together since the normalization of relations in 1995 and the potential for working together on issues related to economy, security, the environment. Let me just highlight a few of the areas where we can continue to build our relationship. First, we can together work to build a prosperous, secure future across the Indo-Pacific. Strengthening the rules-based international order providing security for all nations and promoting shared prosperity, working together through ASEAN, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, other multinational institutions and platforms to strengthen commerce, strengthen supply chains. We can work together. We can slow climate chaos. We can work together to accelerate our mutual transition to renewable energy. This is something that has to happen incredibly fast. We see the impacts in the United States. We see the impacts in Vietnam. These last nine years have been the hottest on record in the world. This last July 4th was the hottest day in the history of human occupation on or human presence on this planet. And as Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos move up the manufacturing value chain, more multinational corporations want to move production to countries with 100% renewable clean energy, well then building that clean energy infrastructure will be indispensable to realizing that vision. And I don't need to tell anyone here that Southeast Asia, in particular the Mekong Delta, is incredibly susceptible to the impacts of, of climate change from the warmer temperatures rising sea levels, salt infiltration, uh, challenging the fertility of soils, uh, floods, more powerful storms, and so forth. And speaking of the Mekong Delta, uh, we can work together on some of the challenges like sustainable fisheries, countering chemical contamination, cleaning up plastic pollution, restoring habitats. I am proud to lead in partnership with Senator Sullivan, Alaska, a bipartisan resolution in the U.S. Senate, recognize the importance of the Mekong Delta to Southeast Asia and the role of the Mekong-United States Partnership for Promoting Prosperity. We know that our two nations will not always see eye to eye on every issue. We have different histories. We have different forms of government. but we can use the foundation that has come from the war legacy programs and the cooperation on these other programs. We can use that to have the sort of relationship where we can discuss those differences and work to resolve them. Together, our countries can build a new future that is prosperous for all, that respects human rights, that addresses climate chaos, that protects natural resources. And I was very, very struck while sitting on the Leahy bench at the Peace Park. About a symbol of our countries going forward together. If you sit on that bench and you stare across the park, you will see at the other end that there are two fighter planes. But those fighter planes are not facing each other in confrontation. Instead, they are mounted parallel to each other, side by side with each other, representing our partnership going forward together, same direction. One plane, Vietnamese, one plane, an American fighter, side by side, flying into the future together. That was a beautiful representation to me Because suddenly those fighters in the peace park are not about war, they're about partnership. Earlier this year, Vietnamese Prime Minister Phạm Minh Chin said, between negotiation and confrontation, we choose negotiation. Between dialogue and conflict, we choose dialogue. And between peace and war, we choose peace, negotiation, dialogue, peace. Failing to make those choices in the past brought war and suffering. But choosing them now is a path to a far better future. Thank you.
0: Mr. Senator, thank you for your leadership, and thank you for your comments this morning. With your permission, we'd like to pick up on just a few of the aspects of your discussion. The first, you touched on the fact that you have sponsored with someone from the other side of the aisle, with a Republican senator, important legislation that looks at the Mekong Delta. How have you seen both Democratic leaders and Republican leaders react to the elevation of our relationship with Vietnam into a comprehensive strategic partnership?
1: Uh, The reaction has been extremely positive. Uh, um, There is a sense that uh, we share uh, mutually beneficial opportunities. And uh, as I think about for example, right now, uh, what I saw in Vietnam was a rapidly expanding first world economy. And um, the, as I went from uh, meeting to meeting, a number of people pointed out that the goal of the country is to be developed on a par with other Southeast Asian economies like South Korea or Taiwan by the year 2040. It's not very far away. To do that requires uh, an incredibly fast investment uh, by uh, the world to produce parts for the international supply chain. And so Vietnam has a strong interest in the economic partnership with the United States of of America and we have a strong interest. And many of our our companies uh, that have been operating primarily in China are looking to move Uh, and to uh, move to, part of it's driven by the Chinese treatment of um, the Uyghur community and a lot of the production that is done with slave labor, wanting to move to an alternative. And so uh, this is happening incredibly fast, uh, and um, I I mean I was just stunned by the level of development that I, I saw, modern infrastructure, modern light rail being built, so on and so forth at a pace that I was a little jealous, actually. Uh, could we bring some of that to Oregon? And uh, so I, the, I think the reaction is, has been that that's very positive, uh, that we have some mutual security uh, interests uh, too in terms of the dynamics of, uh, of Southeast Asia, and so that there's a, a lot of opportunity here.
0: Senator, you've talked about the beginning of this new phase of our relationship, our friendship through the elevation of our formal state-to-state relations into this comprehensive strategic partnership. If this is the beginning, it suggests that there will be ups and there will be downs as we go forward. What do you think some of the highlights are going to be? And we're very interested in your reflections on what you think some of the obstacles are, some of the things that we, together, as Vietnam and the United States, are going to have to face and find solutions for?
1: Yes, so, well, I've mentioned a number of the ops. Uh, the, the I, I think the war legacy programs not only were the right moral thing to do, but they have been so helpful to so many people. Uh, and uh, they have provided a, a foundation for, for dialogue that has led to connections. And for example, the connection um, uh, between Senator Leahy and his team member, Tim Reeser, and Vietnamese leaders. Um, those friendships, and they were friendships built over time, uh, are very meaningful in working on other issues. So I guess I really feel like uh, in addition to the substance of the programs, it's the relationships that, that bode well for the, for the future. In terms of the challenges, Uh, Every issue is complex. Uh, Anything easy has already been done. So therefore, everything you're seeking to do is challenging, by definition. And uh, so whether it's in the economic sphere or in the security sphere, nothing is simple. And so we'll have to iron those out. Perhaps the, um, the, the most significant issue we'll have to wrestle with is that we, our two nations carry often a different approach to the issue of citizen speech and commentary. Uh, And so this issue of of freedom of speech and the ability of citizens to weigh in on issues and challenges uh, and not face retribution for that is something our two nations will definitely um, have a lot of conversations about and, and wrestle with.
0: Senator, you described in a very compelling way why this issue has meant so much to you personally. And we think of the extraordinary role that fellow senators, Senator Leahy, Senator McCain, Senator Kerry have played in shaping, committing to, propelling this extraordinary 50-year reconciliation process. Where do you want to see that process go next?
1: So those individuals, Senator Kerry, Senator McCain, and certainly Senator Leahy, they did invest enormous effort uh, to make this connection. And you have uh, both Senator McCain uh, and Senator John Kerry having been in the Vietnam War, carrying that connection. Of course, Senator McCain having been uh, imprisoned uh, and. Emotionally, it's so powerful to see those who were directly involved put the war behind them and build friendships and connections and call for us to be on a different path. Those of us who are coming after, we did not serve in the Vietnam War. I feel the connection by having kind of barely missed the war and having studied it carefully and and had strong feelings uh, about it, Uh, But that connection will be less over time for those who are more separated, as my students were, who were only four years behind me in in, in college. So we have to carry this connection forward and it will change uh, a shape, but let's make sure that we keep the foundation in place, so we keep investing in completing vision of the war legacy programs. Let's have more senators visit Vietnam, and visit Cambodia and, and Laos. Laos, by the way, is going to be hosting ASEAN uh, for this coming uh, year, so it's a very good moment a uh, f- reason for people to say, let's, let's, make that, let's make that trip. The senator who went with me, Senator Chris Van Hollen, uh, is uh, the chair of the subcommittee on Southeast Asia of the Foreign Relations Committee, which I also serve on. So he's going to be a, a powerful partner in this. Uh, Senator Coons, who chairs the Appropriation or the Spending Committee that Senator Leahy uh, uh, led and that um, uh, Tim Reeser served as the clerk for, well he is, uh, he being Chris Coons, Senator Coons, is, is keenly interested in supporting programs. So let's let's keep building the conversation, make sure we complete that vision. But then there will be so many more newer conversations about security, about the economy, about the environment. And so uh, I just look forward to bringing in senators who are concerned about or interested in that whole set.
0: And then, Senator, if you allow a final question. The reconciliation process between Vietnam and the United States is, in fact, the longest reconciliation process in the entire modern period. It's lasted 50 years and has gone from milestone to milestone and now from strength to strength. When we look at other conflicts around the world, what would be the advice that you would give leaders in countries that are at war about how to end them and how to reconcile?
1: Well, that's a pretty uh, uh, powerful question, (laughs) broad (laughs) question. But let me start by just recognizing that time period. So I mentioned that 1973, June of 73 is when the U.S. ended the, the induction process of uh, folks whose draft number had come up. Uh, well, here we are, June of 2023 is exactly 50 years. So it is half a century process uh, of work, of investment in relationships and, 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 and programs. The relationship that was most talked about as I was growing up was reconciliation with Germany Mm -hmm. from World War II and uh, how the Marshall Plan had been a a key part of investing in a prosperous Germany and building a foundation for other relationships. So we have that example. We have the Vietnamese example. Here's what we know. When countries have a conflict Leaders often lead a conversation in which they devalue the humanity of the opponent. And that was certainly true in our conflict in World War II and our conflict in Vietnam, because it's easier to be at war in which you are looking down the scope of a rifle or dropping, pushing a button to drop a bomb if you've dehumanized the opponent. We know that that dehumanization is false. We know that the same kind of set of human values uh, exist and reverberate in every culture. And so we have to resist that type of um, leadership that calls out for dehumanizing others. And we have to recognize for any given conflict that there, if, if big conflicts of the past could be ended and um, bridges created that were probably almost impossible to imagine when in the conflict or shortly after the conflict, then we know that it can be done in the existing situations This uh, entire United States Institute of Peace um, facilitates dialogue, uh, facilitates cooperation, uh, in an effort to help kind of build pathways to end conflicts or heal wounds or build relationships. And so let me just end by saying that that work is absolutely critical. Uh, My first experience on, on Capitol Hill was an intern for Senator Hatfield. And Senator Hatfield had been one of the first uh, members of the Navy into Hiroshima after the dropping of the atom bomb. And he became a lifelong advocate for diminishing the threat of nuclear weapons. And he and Senator Ted Kennedy, a Republican and a Democrat, worked together in the nuclear freeze movement. They then planted together a tree that is a tree that uh, is extinct in North America for millions of years. It happens to be the Oregon State fossil. And this tree was found still growing in China, and it's referred now to as a dawn redwood. Well, you will find that tree growing in the path if you walk from my office across the open grounds to the Senate chamber. I pass it multiple times every day. And I have put a plaque on it talking about the peace tree. Well, the connection here uh, is that if you have individuals who are dedicated to building relationships, to building a vision of of peace, who are partnering across the aisle, we can build a, a much better Now that peace tree is now the tallest tree on the Capitol grounds. It was not when I was elected 15 years ago. And I wrote up in a pamphlet that when the peace tree became the tallest tree on the grounds, perhaps we'd see a new era of peace in the world. Well, I'm not sure that that vision has been accomplished, (laughs) but let's rededicate ourselves in the context of our relationship with former enemies that are now partners. Let's rededicate ourselves to building on the work, the work that this U.S. Institute of Peace is involved in, uh, relationships and partnerships to build toward a more prosperous future. Resolve our differences through dialogue, to choose dialogue, as the prime minister said, uh, to choose partnership and cooperation rather than war.
0: Mr. Senator, thank you. I hope everyone joins me in thanking the senator. That brilliant. Absolutely brilliant.
2: Thank you. Good morning, and welcome to the roundtable to release two new reports on Agent Orange in Vietnam, which is a part of USIP's uh, War Legacies and Reconciliation Initiative. For the last year, um, I've had the pleasure to work with. Uh, three authors uh, on two different reports, one about the uh, overview of the effects and uh, efforts to remediate Agent Orange and help victims in Vietnam, and the second looking specifically at U.S. assistance and programs that provide non-medical support to victims and families. Uh, Two of the authors of these reports are are with us today, and will be sharing about uh, the contents and and their experiences uh, in doing this research. Uh, First will be Phan Suun Zutm, who is a researcher at the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies in Singapore. Uh, As a uh, young Vietnamese researcher, he's written compelling articles uh, about Agent Orange in Vietnam, its meaning, um, in U.S.-Vietnam relations. Uh, welcome. We're really delighted to have you here with us today uh, at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, the second report was co-authored by Susan Hammond and Don Quan. Quan. Susan is the executive director of the War Legacies Project based in Vermont, which is a non-governmental organization supporting uh, families affected by Agent Orange, uh, both in Vietnam and in Laos. Uh, and Tuan, the co-author, uh, works with Project Renew in Quang Chi province, Vietnam. Um, and Project Renew is an organization that was founded by the US veteran Chuck Searcy and Quang Chi provincial counterparts to address UXO and, and other war legacies, uh, including Agent Orange. Uh, We will invite each of the authors here to uh, give an overview of their reports, and then we will have time for questions and answers uh, with the audience in person and online. There are two mics down at the front of the stage, and since we're starting later than planned, I think we will go over a bit into the coffee break and, and push the schedule back so there's enough time for discussion. And with that, I'd
3: like to invite someone to start. Uh, Thank you, Andrew. Uh, First, I would like to express my appreciation for the USIP and especially Andrew for entrusting me with the responsibility of preparing this very important report. Um, It's a new and comprehensive analysis of Vietnamese Asian Orange victims, uh, and I hope that everyone uh, will have the opportunity to read it later. And for the purpose of today's um, roundtable discussion, I will cover some key findings of my report. The slide.
1: Go ahead, we'll get it done.
3: Yeah. All right. Um, Okay, so my report, slide. My report is based on a review of existing studies and also interview data that I collected in uh, 2022. Um, while writing this report, I visited the Vietnam Friendship Village in Hanoi, which provides home for children with disabilities associated with uh, Asian orange exposure. And in this photo, you can see me and uh, some of the children at the village. The village. Um, was founded by an American veteran, George Meisel, who had served in Vietnam and later passed away because of health complications related to dioxin exposure. The village stands as a symbol of people-to-people reconciliation in Vietnam-U.S. relations, alongside many other examples of humanitarian work by Americans and American NGOs such as Susan's um, War Legacies Project. However, um, in Vietnam, many believe that the US government has not done enough to reconcile with Vietnamese victims. So, The purpose of my report is to make a case for greater efforts by the US government to address the needs and concerns of people affected by Agent Orange in Vietnam. Um, Their ongoing uh, suffering is a humanitarian tragedy that was caused by U.S. wartime action and the U.S. can help to mitigate. And doing more on this issue will also enhance bilateral trust which serves as a solid foundation for the Vietnam-U.S. Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. So um, first let's start with who are Vietnamese Asian Orange victims. The majority of (coughs) People who identify as Agent orange in Vietnam live in central and southern regions of Vietnam and that was sprayed with herbicides. But they also include northern soldiers who fought in the south and also their descendants. Um, there are currently four generations of Asian orange victims in Vietnam. Um, the first generation includes those who were directly exposed to Agent orange and they experience chronic illnesses, such as cancer and diabetes. Later generations include the the second, third and fourth generation, are descendants of the first generation, and were born with very severe and often multiple disabilities. Now, obtaining the exact number of Vietnamese Asian-orange victims is an impossible task because of scientific limitations and many other unknown variables. So we can only rely on estimates um, to understand the the scope of the issue. One one estimate puts the number of victims at 3 million, and there's another estimate uh, suggests uh, that there are about 1 million victims, uh, including uh, 150,000 children with disabilities. But when we talk about people affected by Agent Orange, we also need to count family members, uh, people who have to deal with the financial, um, physical and mental burdens while caring for affected individuals. And taking that into account, um, it's evident that the number of people affected by Agent Orange in Vietnam likely reaches into the millions, uh, even if we cannot provide an exact number. So, what have been their experiences? Uh, In my report, I highlight several key themes uh, in this regard. Uh, The first theme is um, their social economic struggles. Uh, The health and disability effects of uh, Agent Orange alone is already tragic. But many affected families also live in poverty um, and they lack access to healthcare services. Caregivers often have to forego stable employment uh, to provide full-time care for the victims. As uh, Mrs Nguyen Thi Hong Thâm uh, told me, she had to quit her job as a tailor to take care for her daughter, who has severe mental and mobility disabilities linked to Agent Orange. and Her family earns meager income uh, from a home-based motorbike washing business and so they have to rely on government assistance to to make ends meet. The second theme that I highlight in my report is psychological distress. Parents of um, victims often feel ashamed and socially isolated, even hiding their status as Asian Orange victims to avoid uh, communal judgement. In many communities, Disabilities often are attributed to fate or karma for past sins, the sins committed by themselves or their ancestors. And so this idea could lead to stigmatisation and discrimination against the families. Caregivers also worry about their children's access to education, employment uh, and medical care as well as who will take care of their children when they, the caregivers, are no longer around. Children with disabilities often face bullying at school, which can lead to a loss of self-confidence and also suicidal thoughts. Um, as for the Kim Tuyen, a second generation victim shared with me, uh, and I quote, When I was in school, other kids bullied me, and I, I feel sad and quite alone. I feel ashamed when they made fun of me. I thought about death. The third theme that I mentioned in my report is the disproportionate impacts on women caregivers. Women not only bear the responsibility of caring for their families, but also can be unfairly blamed for the children's disabilities. Some cases even result in single motherhood. As the husband leaves to have a new family, and this is what happened to Mrs. Fanti Zit, a single mother and caregiver of her 29-year-old daughter, who um, has disabilities linked to Agent Orange. Mrs. Zit's husband, who was exposed to Agent Orange, um, left the family when the daughter was just three months old. For many victims and uh, family members. Uh, Agent Orange is not just a personal pain, but also a collective grievance that demands recognition and compensation from its human perpetrators. So there has been an ongoing struggle for justice uh, led by Vietnamese Vietnamese victims and advocates. This includes um, a lawsuit against chemical companies by VAVA, the Vietnam Association for Victims of Agent Orange, in 2004, and another lawsuit by Mrs. Chen Tonga, a French-Vietnamese uh, victim, in 2014. Now, this struggle for justice is driven in part because of a perceived double standard of the US government and Agent Orange producers who recognize and compensate American veterans who are affected by Agent Orange but has not done the same for Vietnamese victims and whatever, what, what, um, whatever the eventual outcome of these legal battles um, for recognition and compensation, Vietnamese people affected by Asian Orange uh, will continue to rely on Vietnamese government support and also assistance from various international NGOs, uh, often with funding from the US government. Um, I will not go into the specifics of these assistance because I think Susan will cover in her, her presentation. Uh, but I will provide a a brief assessment of um, Vietnamese government assistance and US government assistance and provide some recommendations. Vietnamese government assistance can be categorised into two types. Uh, The first is preferential treatment for people with meritorious service for the revolution and the second is general disability assistance. Um, The term people with meritorious service to the revolution refers to individuals, according to the Vietnamese government, um, have made significant contributions to revolutionary causes and Vietnam's development, uh, particularly during wartime. Vietnamese government assistance does alleviate uh, some financial burdens for many families, uh, but however, the monthly stipend provided Um, is often considered insufficient to meet the needs of all families, especially those living in poverty. And for the policy, um, for people with meritorious service to the revolution, it has not covered the third and fourth generation victims. And there are also many problems with the uh, uh, beneficiary identification process that uh, has caused some um, public dissatisfaction. Turning to U.S. assistance, um, (coughs) the U.S. Congress has provided increasing funding to support health and disability programs in eight Vietnamese provinces. And a few days ago, during President Biden's visit to Vietnam, it was announced that there will be two more provinces, uh, leading to the total of ten provinces. And the U.S. AID implements these programs, in the form of direct assistance, capacity building, and policy development. I want to highlight um, notable development, uh, which is the updated language in the appropriations bill uh, on this issue. Now, until 2022, the language in appropriations bills. Uh, was ambiguous about the connection between the allocated funding and Agent Orange. Um, However, in the U.S. Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2022 and uh, 2023, it is explicitly stated that funds will be used to assist persons whose disabilities may be related to the use of Agent Orange and exposure to dioxin. Uh, so I believe this is a positive development toward greater acknowledgement of U.S. responsibility. The programs themselves, the programs um, by USAID, are viewed positively by beneficiaries in Vietnam. Um, they are seen as beneficial to um, many later generations, um, later Agent um, generation vict- Orange victims. However, they are still limited in scope, um, so it is necessary to increase funding and expand the current scope of uh, existing services, particularly direct assistance, because many affected individuals uh, do not have access to rehabilitation centres and healthcare um, facilities. But beyond health and disability assistance, it is also important to have explicit acknowledgement of Vietnamese Agent orange victims, especially in official statements. Um, this is necessary to reduce the criticism of US double standard. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Finally, engaging in direct dialogue um, with the victims and their families is a necessary step toward greater reconciliation with the civilian victims of Asian orange. Um, So what what are the key takeaways from my report? Um, There are three points. First is that the number of people affected by Agent Orange in Vietnam may be as many as several millions, and their needs are both diverse and pressing. Second, despite the scale of the challenge, the Vietnamese government and increasingly the US government have sought to provide assistance to Agent Orange victims and their families. Third, much more remains to to be done to assist and reconcile with the multiple generations of Vietnamese affected. Um, And to conclude, I would like to say that as the two um, countries, as the two governments enhance their ties, it is crucial not to leave war victims behind, Um, not just Agent Orange victims, but also victims of UXO and many people who are still looking for their missing loved ones. And so I hope that my report and also Susan's and Tuan's report will contribute to the discussion on how to, to ensure that uh, cooperation on war legacy issues is an integral part of Vietnam-US comprehensive strategic partnership. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much, Zhong, for that. Uh <coughs>
4: cảm ơn cảm ơn bạn đã cho một cái nhìn rất là tổng quan và xúc tích về cái, và toàn diện về các báo cáo của bạn uh, tôi nghĩ là cái công bố hôm tuần rồi của hai vị lãnh đạo uh, tổng thống Biden và tổng bí thư Nguyễn Phú Trọng tôi sẽ tôi nghĩ cái bấm báo cáo này là sẽ có một phần quan trọng trong những cái nỗ lực hợp tác uh, và nghị Susan um, cũng báo cáo của Susan cũng vậy sẽ tạo những bước tiến cho chúng ta trong tương lai Cũng như Andrew nói đó, cái báo cáo của tôi thì um, nó sẽ cho bao trùm một số những cái nỗ lực hỗ trợ của Hoa Kỳ đối với Việt Nam về những nạn nhân da cam, chất da cam. Và Phong cũng đã đi phỏng vấn 14 cái tổ chức phục vụ uh, trọng tâm vào hỗ, hỗ trợ, mà những hỗ trợ này nó không có nó không có liên quan đến vấn đề y tế. Um, là dùng cái quỹ của bên USAID uh, một,
5: uh, t- who we rely on his reports and if you haven't read the CRS reports on US um, assistance on this issue read them they're still very valuable um, it gives a nice history of where we've gone on, on this issue over the years since um, 2007 um, the U.S. has um, begun funding specifically to address the Agent Orange issue in Vietnam, and it took more than, unlike the unexploded ordnance issue, which we heard this morning, started in the in the 90s, earlier 90s. It took almost a, a decade, more than a decade, actually, after the normalization of relations for the two countries to work together to how to address the problems of Agent Orange. And we could spend the whole day talking about that history, but we're really looking towards the future, um, about where we are now um, on this, on this issue. And in the beginning, as as you mentioned, it really was not very specific. It was focused on addressing the related health issues um, around the people communities that lived around the dioxin hotspots. And that was in the very early days where we were trying to basically define the the full extent of the problems of Agent Orange. Um, But luckily, we had Senator Leahy and Tim Reeser putting money into the system and, in a lot of ways, forcing USAID to confront um, this issue. Um, And over time, as as was mentioned, uh, the language has changed significantly um, to the point where it's much more direct to address um, people who are persons who, whose disabilities may be related to the use of Agent Orange and exposure to, to dioxins. So in the Senate language, it's very clear that the target of this USAID funding is for people believed in Vietnam to be um, Agent Orange victims. And as we said, it was very, it's very difficult to define who they are, um, but the, because the USAID um, funding, by, by its nature, really, um, is needs to be looking at disabilities regardless of cause because you can't help one person with a disability and then ignore um, a, you know, the person who has the Agent Orange related disability and ignore the other person in, who's their neighbor who also has a disability. So morally you really have to approach it as a regardless of cause, but the language um, and the appropriations bills targets it geographically, which is I'm happy to see that another uh, two provinces has been added. So the U.S. and over the years, the U.S. and Vietnam have really began to, to fine-tune how they're going to work together to address this, um, the disability section of, of impacts of Agent Orange. And as um, Daniel uh, Ambassador Krittenbrich mentioned back in 2019, when this partnership really began to be developed, um, He says, our goal is simply put to improve the quality of life for persons with disabilities here in Vietnam. And in that expanded partnership on disabilities, the two governments agreed to cooperate to expand healthcare and rehabilitation services, expand the social inclusion and improve the quality of life of people with disabilities, improve policies and public attitudes, reduce barriers and increase social inclusion, and strengthen the capacity in the implementation of support activities. And so currently the USAID funding, which is now at 30 million a year from the beginning of 3 million, um, is channeled through several organizations. Um, two, are American, uh, two are foreign organizations, the Humanity and Inclusion, which is really working on the, the capacity building of the rehabilitation sector. And then Vietnam assistance to the handicapped, who also um, works in that field, but it re- also has been done a lot over the past several decades to help the Vietnamese expand, uh, develop and implement their disability, law and disabilities. And then there's five, currently five Vietnamese organizations that are the primary recipients of, of, of the funding, though there are many sub-recipients like Project Renew, who I worked, uh, worked with on this paper. Um, as we said earlier, much of the funding has been imp- focused on improving rehabilitation services in Vietnam and helping the Vietnamese develop and implement the law on disabilities. And although they are uh, I skipped a, the Vietnamese government has also made great efforts, um, as was summarized earlier, um, partly for f- passing the, the, the law on disabilities, but also creating this support system. Through um, through the Ministry of Labor and uh, Social, I always get that mixed with the Social Labor Ministry of Labor well, and Social, Social Affairs. Affairs. I get it always mixed up with the the Lao version of it. But um, and so there, there's this monthly stipend program that if you are certified as a person with a disability who has a severe or very severe disability, and as Ung mentioned, it's not it's the families welcome this assistance, but it's not sufficient to address all of their needs. The 2016 uh, National Survey on People with Disabilities in Vietnam found that households with disabilities are twice as likely to live in multi-dimensional poverty in Vietnam. The greatest impact is on the quality of their housing and sanitation, the likelihood of children not completing school. And these deprivations are greater in the rural areas of Vietnam. 80% of the people with disabilities in Vietnam live in rural communities, so they have a uh, difficult access to the medical care that is existing, but the, uh, the impact of disability tends to be more severe um, when you're living in a, in a rural community. Also having a, a Family, a person with a disability in your family is shown to increase a family's cost of living by 12% due to the increased cost of medical care, transportation, food, personal care, and many other expenses that come with caring for a family member with a disability. Mm-hmm. And often, it require, if it's a child with a very severe, or an adult in some cases, some of these children we're talking about are now in their 30s or 40s. <laughs> they they often require a full-time caregiver, who therefore cannot work outside the home, cannot contribute to the income, um, can't even go to the, um, into the fields to farm. So programs that are focused only on, on the medical side of disability, I mean, though they are very welcome and very needed in Vietnam, they do not address the impacts of disability that affect the whole family and make it difficult for families to move outside of this financial or multidimensional poverty. And so our report looked at at 14 different organizations. Many of them were chapters of the Vietnam Association of Victims of Agent Orange who have a, uh, programs in probably almost every province now, I would assume, in, in Vietnam that are providing some working directly with families who have victims uh, who are have family members with disabilities, particularly those believed to be impacted by Agent Orange. So the Vietnam Red Cross is another organization that has a na- nationwide um, impact because they have, both VAVA and the Vietnam Red Cross, have volunteers often down to the very local village level, and even smaller level in that in some cases. So they have really developed direct relationships with the people with disabilities in their community. So they are well, both Vava and the Red Cross are very well placed to provide programs that are providing direct assistance to families or are caring for severely disabled <laughs> children. Um, and our interviews found that in the non-medical side of the equation, there are these programs tend to fall into six main categories: livelihood support, which it could be helping families um, develop uh, livestock um, breeding, setting up a small business in their home so the caregiver does not have to leave the home, improving the living conditions. Um, when you have, uh, particularly in, in areas where <laughs> many of these people live where there's uh, the rainy season and the monsoon season that comes through and the typhoons that come through. There are um, homes that are in vast need of safe um, housing, uh, roofs that won't leak. So many of these organizations help in that that aspect. Um, Educational support, even though there are um, if you're a child with a disability, you can get tuition uh, reduction, you can get scholarships, but those don't cover the full cost of um, an education. You may, you may need transportation to get to and from school, and that can be difficult if you're a, someone with a physical disability. But also, some of these organizations provide support to the siblings of children with disabilities because after they will be the ones who will need to provide the caregiving for their, their disabled sibling um, when their parents pass on. And so to help with that, um, ensure that that child stays in school so that they can have a, a, a decent job upon graduation so that they can have, ideally, have some of the resources that are needed to care for their disabled sibling when their parents pass. Um, some other organizations provide just financial assistance for either an emergency situation that comes up or um, just cash assistance to help them um, deal with a medical medical trip or um, you know, if they, have some, they lose a job and are in a situation where they need cash on hand. So there's some organizations who will provide that type of support. Um, Caregiver training and support, which USAID has also provided, but the Red Cross and VAVA and others have worked by training their network of local volunteers to provide, to assist caregivers um, in providing better care for their children with disabilities or providing some respite care even, so the mother can go off to the market. Um, And the others, um, programs, Work on providing social integration and peer support and helping people with disabilities integrate into their, their local committee, uh, community. In addition, a few of the programs, and I want to shout out here to the uh, Children of Vietnam's Hope System of Care, work in collaboration with multiple government agencies and organizations to provide more comprehensive wraparound services to people with disabilities and their families. And since about 80% of the people with disabilities live in rural families. Many of these programs come out in the form of the first, which is the livelihood support, um, and often in the form of raising uh, cattle, um, water buffalo, Um, and these can be challenging um, because it's not, you can't just take this cow and hand it to a family and expect everything to go well. I mean, you really have to be engaged with the family from the very beginning. You have to bring um, the veterinary services there from the very beginning to, to make sure that that animal is, is healthy and that they can go, they can breed and, and go through the um, the purpose of why they're there is really to, to have increase the family's li- life, livestock. Um, supply. Um, and without that direct, hands-on um, support, there can be a lot of failure. Um, but if you have um, this program where you invest, the, the families are invested in, in the, um, the livestock by in, including in their own investment, whether it's building the stable or um, helping to purchase the, the animal. There's more, uh, more success that has been found, and then the number and scale of these programs that we looked at with the um, the 14 organizations are pretty limited because they are, they are their funding tends to come through individual donations, particularly when it comes to VAVA and, and the Red Cross. It's, um, donations that they are able to generate in the local community or, in some cases, internationally. And so they, they can ebb and flow. There's no, there's no sustainability at this point. They're pretty, um, uh, depending on what funding is available at the, at the time. So there needs to be more sustainable funding sources targeted at this type of, of support. Um, and as Ambassador Crittenberg noted in 2019, the U.S. and Vietnam were working together to create a comprehensive service system that supports caregivers as well as a person with disability. And so far USAID has done a pretty good job, I mean I, I can critique some of their things, but overall they've done a very good job on the, on the rehabilitation side and the, and the disability rights side of these issues. Um, but I think there can be more efforts over time to reach what Ambassador Crittenbring also mentioned connecting people with disabilities and their families to economic and social support, and particularly that economic support, because having a child with a severe disability is an economic strain that impacts the whole family. And so when I was completing this paper I was happy to read that the USAID is doing some pilot projects in this field and maybe we can hear from Tony about some of the successes there and the lessons learned and how we can move this uh, forward more. Um, And on an individual level, these are just a few uh, examples of some of the livelihood um, support. and educational supports, caregiving, training. So on an individual level, these programs are not, it's not a huge amount of money, it, it depends on the type Type of program, obviously, but for um, scholarships and small loans, up to uh, that can be 100, 250 dollars per family. Um, For building, helping, renovating a home, which is a huge need as well, it's more around the range of 2,000 a family. Um, The animal husbandry that I talked about is usually in the 20 million dollar, 20 million dong range, or about 340 to 860 per family, depending, again, on the type of livestock that you're helping them with. Um, and then some of the more wraparound services that the children of Vietnam provide and others, um, the investment is around 1,000 per family, not including, of course, you know the, the management costs that are involved in that. So I, think, I believe that scaling up these projects can be possible if there is more cooperation between the implementing organizations and local government officials. And there's already a framework in place in Vietnam for the, called the Action Plan on Disabilities from 2021 to 2030, which oops, which kind of outlays how each ministry and each organization can work together to, to, and set concrete goals in order to improve services and support people with disabilities. So there's a plan in place. The, the issue is trying to work, how do you filter in some of these Um, individual organizations and efforts into the greater plan to provide uh, more sustainable direct assistance to people with disability and so the next round of appropriations remains at 30 million which we, we hope it does I mean that investment in the future can If that can be transferred, not just to the medical programs that are in the the pipeline, but some of these additional support that families need beyond medical care, we could go a great, uh, a long way in addressing um, some of the economic support that is needed, uh, needed for these families. And again, as we don't really know the full extent of how many people we're talking about, um, though there are surveys on disabilities in Vietnam, and we do have a sense of how many have severe or very severe disabilities. Um, and if you target it geographically to the areas where there are, um, where we're working now, um, in the provinces that were sprayed. We're really talking an estimated population of about 73,000 or more, uh, around 73, 74,000 people with disabilities. And if your le- average level of support is $500,000, I mean $500, I'm sorry, You, with that $30 million that the US is already allocating, at hopefully per year for the next several years, if some of that can be put into these programs that are non-medical assistance you could really make a difference in those 73,000 families so in conclusion oops i didn't put this one on sorry um, one of the, my conclusions of my paper that our paper is that one of the priorities is to de- devote more resources time and Attention to providing non medical support for persons with significant disabilities. In addition to this, isn't excluding what has been done in the rehabilitation side of things, but in addition to what has been done on the rehabilitation side. The second priority is to foster more and closer collaboration between Vietnamese government agencies and Vietnamese international NGOs in order to provide more wraparound services for people with disabilities. And third, is to fully engage people with disabilities and their families in the programs that support them. And that, that was your recommendation as well. You have to really bring the people into the discussion. You can't just bring the program to them. Um, thank you. I'll end here with, if you want to read the quote from uh, Ambassador, uh, the um, Samantha Power.
2: Great, please join me in uh congratulating Zoom and Susan uh, for their work and and presentations this morning. And I'd also like to thank the USIP publications team that we've been working Mm. with to uh, get these reports uh, finished and printed. Um, According to one of my colleagues, USIP produces a large number of reports on many different peace and security topics, but these reports have special meaning and the chance to be I think really go-to sources uh, for understanding Agent Orange issues in Vietnam uh, for years to come Um, so they were also quite moved by what you've done and uh, and these issues that we're talking about Uh, I'd like to ask the first question and then we'll open up for uh, for everyone else Uh, at a workshop that USIP organized with the Diplomatic Academy of Vietnam several months ago, uh, Charles Bailey, former Ford Foundation and Aspen Institute uh, leader, uh, stated that he thought that a key difference uh, in the US-Vietnam reconciliation process compared with any other post-war uh, relationship is actually the Agent Orange issue. This is a unique feature between the US and Vietnam. Um, And there are many reasons for that, right? One is that it affects both people and the environment around them. It's hidden and unclear in its effects and its causes. Um, We're still finding out what some of the impacts might be. And the fact that it affects US veterans as well as uh people throughout vietnam uh, i'd be interested in your reflections on what role the agent orange issue has played in u.s vietnam reconciliation and getting us to this new comprehensive strategic partnership who'd like to start
3: you want to start yeah i can start please mm-hmm. uh yes uh, i i've worked with charles bailey closely on this report. So first I would like to extend my appreciation uh, for him. I wish he could be here today. Um, and as I learned about this issue, as I, do, as I did research on this topic, it was the most difficult war legacy issue mm-hmm. in Vietnam-US relations because of the reasons that you mentioned. Um, for many years, even after normalization, the two sides could not agree on the science, on the basis facts, Um, And so that state of um, deadlock persisted even even as we have formal relationships. But I think um, what led to the progress was the initiatives by a lot of um, people from both sides, both from the state sector and the non-state sector, working together because they realised that it is a humanitarian issue that uh, we need to do something about, right? It affects not just Vietnam, uh, but also the US and also veterans from other countries. Right? So it's a shared humanitarian issue that connected us. And, and because of that, we had you know, a lot of initiatives that led to scientific discovery uh, of the hotspots. Um, and then we talk about science. We began to talk about science. Right? Before that, we just, um, the issue was mired with, you know, politics and emotions, so it was very hard to reach a compromise. But then we discovered the science, and we also recognize that, you know, the science might not be perfect, but we, it's something that we can work with. And we do see that there are a lot of people in need, so let's, let's combine that together. Right? We have some science, um, and we also have the need. You know, compassion to do something about it, um, and then we can compromise and work together. Um, and it, sh- it demonstrates that, you know, we can, it's the most difficult issue, and we overcame that. Um, and so I think it shows the strength of U.S.-Vietnam relations, of U.S.-Vietnam reconciliation, and it shows that, you know, people from both countries are willing to work together to deal, to confront with lingering uh, war legacies.
5: Yeah, I would agree with that. It's been, um, I think, very important, because it was there was just so many, throughout that earlier days, the, the two countries just could not figure out how to discuss this issue in a way that can address the humanitarian problems. Everyone was seeing the humanitarian issues. We couldn't agree on, on defining what was causing it, necessarily, but there was certainly in a sense of we got to. Um, help these people who are impacted by the war. Um, but it really took, I mean, I, I think we really have to thank Tim and Senator Leahy for being so persistent in and invol- evolving that language over time to the point where it was really forcing USAID, you know, the administrative side, to, to reach out to this population that the Vietnamese, they, they weren't questioning the science. For them, they were a victim of Agent Orange, and that victim, they were victims because of the war caused by, by the US. Um, but through Senator Leahy and Tim and Charles, who also really you know finesse that language in a way to get um, the programs to more reflect what um, the Vietnamese the the people that the Vietnamese wanted helped, which are those who are perceived to be, or were believed to be, or are victims of Agent Orange, you can, it's, I, I kind of hesitate because it's hard, you get stuck on the science, like you say, it's like because you cannot prove that one individual person has, you know, this disability due to that Agent Orange. I mean, the science shows that in animal studies quite clearly, but it's, it, that was that, stumbling over the language, which I still do today, was causing a lot of these problems. But they, we worked it out. The US and the Vietnamese worked it out. They found a way to address this really controversial, both scientifically controversial and just politically and scientifically uh, controversial issue. And I think that it's a good example of what can be done in other, other countries to develop, to tackle some of those problems. of of where you just can't see um, to find a a way to have a common language on it and then, or agree in a way to um, stop debating over the language and just doing the work that needs to be done to provide assistance.
2: Great, thanks to you both. So we welcome comments and questions uh, in the discussion. Um, Please come down to one of the two mics here in front. would like to go first. We welcome questions in Vietnamese as well.
6: Please. Hi, uh, Scott Willis from Children of Vietnam and uh, I want to just say thank you Dung and uh, Susan for these reports um, and uh, for continuing to draw attention to this really important issue. Um, and thank you Susan for the shout out to Hope System of Care for uh, the program that we run. It was in fact Hope System of Care that drew me to Children of Vietnam back in 2014 so I'm very proud of the work that we do. Um, my, my question is this, well first I want to say that um, I think what what's happening, you know, with respect to Agent Orange and, and the treatment of people with disabilities is is making great progress. I mean, if we look at the 2022 and 2023 language in the budgets, right, you, you've got, in, you know, first of all, it went from 20 to 30 million, and you're actually saying the words Agent Orange, right? right. So this, these are milestones. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that, right? So of course, there's still work to be done. but. Um, you know, and, and when we look at the infrastructure, uh, albeit it's, it's, it's small and, you know, limited to certain provinces, like we're in Quang Nam, you're in Quang Nam, but you're working with Red Cross. We have our local stakeholders and partners that we're working with. So, you know, the model is there. It just needs to be expanded. So in Vietnam, I think at least, of course it can be bigger and more, but it's it's on track, right? Mm-hmm. My question to you, Susan, I know you're very active in Laos and looking at the issue of dioxin contamination there. And I'm just wondering when you think Laos is going to be ready to kind of begin this journey, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got a 1.5 million there versus 30 million for Vietnam. It's obviously a smaller scale in Laos, that's, that's, I got that, but, you know, I, we're not really doing anything there, I think, in terms of remediation, in terms of helping people with disabilities. Just wanted to get your thoughts on when you think Laos will be able to get on the train. Thank We're you. getting
5: closer, okay. <laughs> so that's good. To, and first of all, the language is in the last two appropriation bills, 1.5 million. Um, in Laos, the problem is, is somewhat different because the, um, the primarily the spraying that took place in Laos or in the, the, the spine along the, the border between Vietnam and Laos, um, very rural communities, um, mostly ethnic minority communities that don't have access to health care to begin with, Um, So um, even identifying how many people have disabilities that may be related to Agent Orange is is challenging. I mean, my organization in Laos, we go village to village in in the districts where we're working. Um, And we do find the same types of disabilities, the same um, percentage um, population-wise that you see across the border in Vietnam. And the Laos know, particularly the border villages, they know that Vietnam is receiving this assistance from the US government. They're, they're well aware of it. Um, but things move very slowly in Laos. And we are now, um, as far as I know, the last I talked to USAID, which was several months ago, they are hoping to develop a program um, to reach those rural communities, the rural districts that were sprayed. Um, hopefully having some type of um, program in place by the end of the year they have a strong disability program there now but they're not in these more remote areas um, so we're hopeful that 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 will start to phase out and they'll be able to utilize the funding that's in the, the pipeline right now which is a total of three million on the dioxin hotspot side of the question in viet i mean in lao that's um more challenging because of the secret nature of the war. We, there is no Danang or Binhua, no large um, military bases where millions of these barrels were stored in Laos. They're, we're talking about much smaller um, bases that the CIA was operating out of that we have heard from CIA um, alumni, you know, Air America, former pilots, that they do, did have barrels Of herbicide, whether it was Agent Orange or something else, they're a little unclear. Um, But for the dioxin hotspot, that's where science is very simple. You you go in and you test and you analyze the soil, and if it's there's a dioxin problem, then we know ways to remediate that. But there's still a lot of sensitivity in Laos um, about these sites. I mean, these were. you know, former CIA bases like Long Chan, which are still sensitive areas today in Laos. So so getting that, um, moving forward on the remediation side is is challenging, not only because the the Lao are hesitant, but the U.S. Embassy, to them it's not a priority either because it's pretty small. Um, So we're still moving, trying to push that a little bit further, but it's slow steps on the remediation side.
2: If I can add to that, when I was in Laos a month ago uh, with Sarah Kolobdura, uh we met with several of the Lao government's officials from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs who had recently gone to Vietnam on a study visit that uh, Susan's uh, organization sponsored. Uh, and uh, they visited some of the hotspots and areas affected I- in Vietnam. It seems to me that that has increased their interest mm-hmm. and uh, uh, perhaps they're ready to speak more about uh, Agent Orange issues yeah. in Laos. And also from, from USAID, I met the mission director uh, in Bing Chan. Yeah, so they have this existing OCARD project, which is supporting people with disabilities in several provinces. And their intention with this uh, additional appropriated funds is to expand that to several provinces in uh, central and southern Laos, uh, that, that, that were sprayed. So that's sort of a comparable strategy to the one that USAID has fi- uh, carried out in Vietnam, first geographic targeting.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but then, as you say, it's a question of okay it's in that geographic area but what places exactly and and how to reach and best support the people affected
5: yeah. there and, and particularly because unlike in vietnam which has a quite robust medical system in place at quite many levels this area of vietnam i mean in Laos, there's there's nothing really set up i mean you have if to get services rehabilitation services you would need to go all the way to Vientiane. Um, which can be an eight to overnight bus ride. And first you even have to get from your rural village to get to the bus. And so there's a lot more complexities in providing services to people with disability in Laos.
2: Who would like to come up next?
7: Hello, good morning, thank thank you so much for the uh, presentation. I was just curious, um, I mean, you all made such uh, brilliant and insightful recommendations about what needed to be done to move this uh, effort forward, and I was just curious to get your take on the kinds of strategies or approaches to um, get people's awareness or support to that place where that kind of action can can, can become reality, particularly when it comes to just communication, or I think you were at the session yesterday it's in discussing, you know, the arts or the role of the arts and these types of initiatives. So I'm just curious to get any ideas about just channels or, you know, approaches to build greater awareness or greater support. Lance, uh, do you want not, to introduce yourself for a minute too? Sure, sure. Uh, I, selfishly, I, I'm a filmmaker. My name's Lance Kramer. And so I spend my de- my time thinking about storytelling and the arts and its role, you know, in, 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 in working towards you know, peace and reconciliation. So I'm not only interested in film, but um, I would love to just get um, your recommendations and not just, you know, in the, I mean, I think I'm interested in government and NGOs, but also just amongst, you know, the general public in both, in both cultures or both countries. Thanks.
5: Well, I think your paper did that very well in a lot of ways in in getting the voices out of the families who um, just understanding the day to day reality, you know, the the waking up, the preparing the meal, the feeding the child, which can take an hour or more. um, And then then there's the the bathing. And I mean, it's just, it's for some of these people that, that you spoke with. Um, with very severe disabilities. I think get for someone who is, does not have that experience of, of caring for a child with severe disabilities, I, I don't think you under, it's hard to understand the intensity of, of that and how it impacts the caregiver and the family. And so I think finding ways to get those stories out and your paper does, uh, uh, helps to do that. Um, in Vietnam, um, I think if you mention Agent Orange to any Vietnamese person, they would know what you're talking about and they would get in their mind a vision of, of who that um, person is um, and the impacts on that family. Because there has been a lot of, thanks to a great extent to the Vietnam assistance of victims of Agent Orange, to Vava, who have, who have that, who are working directly with these families and helping tell their, their stories. Um, but then moving that into policy, um, that's very challenging um, to do. But I, I mean, there's, there's the will there, I think, but it's just it's a lot of it. It's the techniques. How do you actually do it? How do, you, how do you go from that $30 million that's allocated by Congress to a program that's going to reach that family um, that was described um, in your paper, who's um, overwhelmed by the burden of caregiving and, and deeply in
3: poverty? Uh, yes. So one of the theme that one of the themes that I mentioned in my report is um, psychological distress that comes from the reactions of people in the community uh, because disabilities or disabilities linked to Agent Orange um, is can be seen as as a curse. It's it's not perceived as okay. This is human action and these people are suffering the consequences. But you also have Cultural belief that this is God's decision. God, God decided that this family deserves that because you know they did something in the past. Their ancestors did something in the past life, so people have this rumor. Okay, so this family they did something bad. They deserve that. So I think it's important to raise community awareness, um, and I also think why is it so important to have acknowledgement that okay, this is something that the U.S. Air Force did, right? and these people are suffering the consequence. That's why we need clear language to say that, OK, this is not your fault. Right? This is a mistake that happened. Um, there needs to be people to take responsibility for those actions. And so I, I think you know, we should replicate the language in the Appropriations Bill that we are supporting people with disabilities that might be related to Agent Orange. right? Um, to show that, OK, so this is not fit. This is not karma for your actions. This is a world tragedy. It is ongoing. And the US is doing something to address that. I think that's very important. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Megan,
2: do we have questions or comments online? Not yet. OK.
5: Um, just to kind of expand on that, too, with I mean. It, like I said, in Vietnam, people understand the impacts of Agent Orange. It's been in the papers. It's been, um, there's been movies. There's a lot of um, fundraising done to support the victims. That's not the case in Laos at all. Um, it's, the people who were um, impacted are very remote. They know. They recall the planes. They talk about the spraying. Um, they don't link, though, that that spraying that was done 50 years ago. Maybe the cause of the disability in, in their family member. There's, they, there, is that, there is not that link in Laos at, at, at this point.
2: Could I invite our colleagues from VAVA or USAID if you'd like to share your
8: thoughts? Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Andrew, to invite us to have some comment. And uh, first of all, I'd like to say thank you very much for your seat. This time, you uh, organized a roundtable table about these subjects. And for these subjects, uh, we agree with the uh, study and survey from Susan and uh, Mr. Zung here. Um, we understand that it's really difficult to find out the number of the victims, as you said, and it is uh, really difficult to to find how how many of the people now, because as Huy Dung said, it is they have some emotion about themselves, and they don't want to show that they are the victims. So that's why during the ways that we find, we want to survey about that one is not easy, even from outside. And um, the second thing is difficulties. We have no finance to do this for all our provinces in Vietnam. So that's why. We uh, need the help from uh, um, from the u s first, and uh, that's a course and for the propaganda, we know that with this uh, uh, program and with you uh, can post it on, on, online and it's very useful for us because from here we can let everyone to know how about our victims and how about their life now It's very difficult in Vietnam, and they always say that it is a poor and difficult in our countries. And so uh, I think so. with your research, it's very useful for everyone if uh, can present here, and they can understand more about that one. And we'd like to say thank you again for your uh, try to do everything for ours During the days and I think during the times, uh, and before and in the future, and we hope that in the future we have uh, many actions for them and uh, for the new relations between the two countries. And as um, Mr. Uh, Jeff uh, McLean uh, talked about this uh, morning, and uh, we hope that uh, they will continue to this uh, policy that we are doing for us. And um, we hope that uh, um, in the future it is will be better for everyone. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Chi Kang. Mai Kang is the head of international relations uh, at, at Vava, and also uh, with us today is uh, General Minban Ring, who is the president of Vava. He'll be speaking on the uh, the closing plenary this afternoon.
5: Yeah, and I think one sort of um, symbol of how this relationship has strongly developed is that USAID is working with Vava now um, as a sub-grantee, I believe, right, um, and that. Before, it was Vava was sort of like, they're here doing their advocacy, um, kind of separate from what the US government was doing. And now they're, they're really starting to work better um, and more closely together. And I think that's very promising because Vava has such a reach throughout the whole country for this population that we're really targeting, which is the victims of Agent Orange.
2: And I should add that in addition to uh, this session being uh, translated and, and live-streamed in Vietnamese. Uh, we will be translating both Zobin and Susan's reports into Vietnamese. Um, that's not ready yet, but uh, it will be coming out and will be uh, available online. I think we'll go for another 10 minutes, so we do have time for several more comments.
9: So, uh, I am Michael Barton, and thank mm-hmm. you, Susan, for your comment earlier. Um, This has been an issue that I've been dealing with when I was at CRS for about 15 years. And it was actually uh, Representative Faleo Maviega of of America Samoa, who held the first congressional hearing on Agent Orange. Mm -hmm. And in that hearing, he himself found out that he was potentially a beneficiary of the program that the United Mm -hmm. States had for veterans. Um, So that was sort of an interesting uh, detail at the hearing. Uh, that I found out. But that leads me into one aspect that's in the language and has been around for a while that often is looked past. Uh, You've been talking mostly about disabilities and indeed disabilities has been a word that's been used, but it also talks about health care. And it's very sensitive politically, um, both in the United States and in Vietnam. I know on the Vietnamese side, at least through my interlocutors, that they look at the presumed exposure programs that the United States has that provides to US veterans health care for multiple diseases, including type 2 diabetes, which is what Representative Falema Viega had. Um, So far, you have seen a great reluctance on the US side to actually activate that health care side. It has been USAID focusing almost exclusively on disabilities and trying to disentangle or disengage it from the Agent Orange exposure part of it. And there's been kind of a delicate political dance on how it gets brought in, but not explicitly. So one of the things I've often pondered about, when I was at CRS, I I could ponder things, but I couldn't propose things. Now I can, now that I'm retired. But can either of you see a way that something parallel to the presumed exposure program in the United States could be brought into the provision of assistance by the United States in Vietnam, for example, to um, veterans of the conflict on the Vietnamese side, who have some of these types of, of cancer or other medical conditions, not disabilities, but medical conditions that are in need of assistance. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how that might be brought into the program, or is it just politically
3: not feasible
9: at this time?
5: You want to tackle that?
3: (laughs) Um, Thank you, Mr. Martin, for the question. I also consulted um, your report, um, inviting my report. So thank you so much for all your work. Um, So one of the criticism of U.S. assistance in Vietnam is that so far it has uh, disregarded first-generation victims who were directly exposed to Agent Orange and, like you said, um, have well, chronic diseases, not disabilities. Right? So in Vietnam there are support programs uh, for veterans, uh, there are social uh, protection centers that provide health care and treatment for Vietnamese veterans and many of those Uh, are run by VAVA, right? So in Vietnam, there is that support system. And what I recommend in my report is for um, the US to support those existing infrastructure and system in Vietnam. Um, And, you know, and I I also talked to some of the veterans who received treatment in these facilities and they reported improved um, health uh, and they do, you know, do want to See those kind of services being expanded uh, to many other provinces. Um, so I, I think there's uh, an opportunity there for the US to uh, support these programs. And also, by doing so, they also recognize the first generation victims of Asia Orange in Vietnam.
5: Yeah, but I do think it is, there are a lot of political sensitivities about that. And, and even um, even on the disability side of things um, here that we also have not brought up the, the problem of children of veterans in the U.S. who have disabilities that they believe are impacted by Agent Orange. And so that um, I think that kind of adds to, to the complexity because I mean, if we're working with the children who have disabilities in Vietnam who may be Agent Orange related and now we're working with, the, with their parents or grandparents at this point. And we're still ignoring the population back here in the US. It it gets kind of um, challenging politically, I think.
2: I've asked myself the same question, that it's it's interesting that US assistance is going mainly to people in second and following generations that are less definitively linked to Agent Orange, Mm -hmm. whereas the first generation, which no one can dispute they were exposed to dioxin, right? Uh, uh, has, has not benefited uh, to the same extent. Uh, one reason may just be that USAID had existing disability programs and expertise in Vietnam that it could link this to. Tony says no. They did have that. I know. I worked on some of those programs earlier. But that, the, the, you don't think that's the reason? No? Okay. No, not at all. Please, please come up to the mic. Yeah. <laughs> well,
10: uh, my name is Tony Kolb. I'm the uh, Deputy Director of our Reconciliation and Inclusive Development Office um, in Hanoi and uh, responsible for all the war legacy work uh, that USAID has been tasked with uh, taking on. Um, I'm, I'm back in Vietnam for a, a second four-year tour. I just started last November. I had previously worked on the Superfund cleanup uh, aspects of our, of our work in Da Nang and, and Benoit. And now I'm working more closely with our disabilities team. Um, I think the, the easiest way to connect uh, the focus on disabilities within the, um, uh, the victims of Agent Orange support um, that we have currently is that there was from the beginning uh, the Leahy War Victims Fund, which focused a lot on injuries from um, unexploded ordnance. A somewhat safer area or or, a clearer area of cause and effect. Uh, You step on a mine or or deal with uh, an explosion, you know what caused your injury. So uh, there's no debate about uh, the potential role of dioxin, say, in uh, a stroke victim's uh, elderly uh, experience or uh, a child being born to somebody that um, perhaps was involved in the war. Uh, There's just there's inherent uncertainty because, you know, if it was certain, um, there would be many more victims, mm-hmm. and it's simply it, it's not. That's not the way the the human body reacts to uh, environmental contaminants. Some bodies handle it very well, uh, and some are very sensitive to it. So, um, and we'll never know really the, uh, the have the smoking biological gun uh, per se, um, but. You know, I, I really frankly don't know exactly the, the Vietnamese perspective on um, Agent Orange impacts and the focus on birth defects. Um, you know, I just assume that it comes from a, um, you know, a sense of catastrophic impact on, and, and somewhat clear impact from the, from the get-go. If you're born with uh, a congenital issue which is going to affect you the, uh, your whole life, you know, it's, it's a huge burden on any family. Um, and chronic illnesses come on slowly. They're associated with older age. Um, you know, it's, I think it's just more accepted as that's life. Uh, I've had a rough life, and I have to, to deal with it. Um, but when it happens to a child who's sort of an innocent victim, it's just m- much more. It, you know, it, it hits you right there. You need to do something about it. And so, I, you know, I assume that that's one of the reasons that, in the communications on this issue, that it's always been a big focus. uh, Because I I think it was the hope that it would spur action and and response. And uh, I think it it has. It's been successful in that way. Um, It's not that USAID has has had no involvement. In fact, uh, just in the last uh, year, uh, we've been getting strong interest from counterparts in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in particular and some other uh, realms to try to see what we could do to help on, on stroke care. Um, stroke later in life is associated with toxin um, uh, exposure. Um, it has, you know, not, again, not a smoking gun. There's lots of other, you know, smoking in Vietnam uh, causes, uh, potentially. Um, But because it's affecting such a large number of uh, veterans currently, I I think there's a great interest in seeing what can be done uh, to help. And we're currently starting some work with Bakwai Hospital, which is one of our oldest uh, partners in dealing with uh, the medical issues related to uh, dioxin exposure to to try to um, encourage their efforts to establish better uh, quick response care to, to stroke to avoid disabilities. So we're sort of getting in a little bit in the, in the back door and saying that we're trying to prevent disabilities from occurring by uh, improved interventions in the early stages of stroke uh, in victims there and trying to spread that experience through the medical system in Vietnam. Um, I think I'm, I just comment on Laos a little bit, I mean the, the big difference is that the Laosian La government does not recognize um, Agent Orange as a problem. Um, and in fact there's I think some active interest there in not talking about it because they don't want to create problems when they don't see them. Um, so it's a little bit hard for us to cooperate with a, a bilateral partner if they don't see a problem. Uh, They typically come to us and want to work together on things that they self-define so If if uh, I think the exchange visit was very uh, Helpful uh, between Laos and Vietnam to show some practical things that can be done to show improvement and Again, I think that's also the case in Vietnam when you show solutions to uh, a problem. You're going to get a lot more cooperation Mm -hmm. Um, so that again, I, I think explains some of the uh, bias, potentially, in our assistance on disabilities towards the medicalized approach. Um, when you deal with rehab, it's a time-limited and results-oriented uh, intervention. And you know, it's if you don't rehabilitate to the best of your ability, there's no way that uh, the caregivers are going to have an easier life. Or that the family is going to uh, potentially benefit economically from uh, a disabled individual's efforts. So, rehab is sort of the, an, an entry point and, and a critical one, and tailored to the type of money that we have, which is year by year. So, we can, we can do something here, try to leave behind an improved rehabilitation medical system that exists in Vietnam, and it's just weak. Um, when it comes to social support, Uh, interventions the types of things that Susan talked about those are more akin to uh, what we do for veterans which is appropriations that are not going to go away they're going to be there every year uh, to support our VA system so our veterans know that you know later in life you know these benefits will be there Um, we can't provide that to to Vietnam Um, we we only have a small window of time to try to leave behind something uh, significant. And I just think in general that we have not been so very satisfied with the uh, short-term efforts to improve people's economic lives. It could be because we see those fail. And, and we see that's the way we work with poverty in America. Uh, we have benefits that are open to people over time because the challenges keep coming up. And especially when you have a disability, it doesn't really go away. You need, you need some level of assistance all the time. And this is the type of things that VAVA, uh, uh, hopefully everybody knows that acronym, it's the Vietnam um, Association for Victims of Agent Orange, a government program uh, to support the sort of long, long-term assistance over time. Small amounts of money, um, but uh, they're, so, they're a resource there uh, all the time. And we are not currently granting money to VABA. To uh, it's very difficult for us, regulatory-wise, to give money to Vietnamese government uh, institutions um, because of some issues with financial transparency, which we're very sensitive to. Um, but we are trying to build their capacity so that they can play this role into the future um, and in a better, in a more, uh, I guess, impactful way. So what we're we're doing is is trying to share uh, the U.S. experience in dealing um, with these sorts of chronic issues of poverty and social support and and try to share those uh, models and approaches which rely on leveraging government resources and civil society support because that exactly is what VAVA is. full of retired uh, government people with strong connections uh, but have a network of individuals down to the local level um, who volunteer their time to support um, their their beneficiaries. And uh, we just like to see that be sustained and, and improve over time. Um, so we're, we're really proud of our, our partnership with them uh, because I think it reflects um, what I think for many of us has been a a frustration on the ground to be um, sort of hiding this focus on victims of Agent Orange uh, under a a basket of legal uh, risk that the U.S. government has felt, Um, to be, to have the space that um, uh, our leadership, like Ambassador Crittenbrink, was able to to do, to um, speak a little bit more directly to uh, what we know those in Congress want us to do, um, and have good partners in Vietnam to, to, to make that happen uh, is you know it's very satisfying now to be at that, uh,
2: at that point. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much, Tony, for, for sharing. zumer Susan, do you have any closing comments? I think we're oh, about at the
5: No, but I mean I think. Time, think- I think there is more opportunity for USAID funding to get into this more non-medical side of things. I think it's challenging, but I think we're at a point now where we can start to find a way that, um, you're, you're right, you can't do it you know, without an ending. But I think there are ways that, that we can move into this field um, to at least address with some of the, the most immediate needs um, but I know there's a lot of constraints within USAID, even, even house construction and helping a family renovate a house. There's a, there's a whole level of, of layers of bureaucracy even to do something like that. So I think there's, there's ways that we can find. You know, the b- best thing about Vietnam, I think, is there's always a way. You can always find a way um, to, to solve the problem. And the Vietnamese are very creative in doing that. So I think, I think there's openings here.
3: Yeah, and to add to that, you know. Just as we overcame the initial deadlock, right? I, I, I do, um, I, I'm confident that you know, um, the two countries can again um, find a compromise and you know, think of a pragmatic way uh, to advance uh, their cooperation. And I, I, I'm glad that you know, there's great interest from both sides um, in um, enhancing the current programs and finding more ways to support people affected by Agent Orange.
2: Great. Thank you both. Uh, That concludes our roundtable. Congratulations again to both of you on publication of the reports and uh, recommend them to uh, everyone in the audience and online uh, to look in more detail. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.